get our Bibles out this morning. How many enjoyed worship? Amen. I was saying the first service, and Pastor Mike and I were agreeing that the older I get, the more these Christmas carols mean something just powerful about the theology in them and the worship of them. Amen. Enjoy the season. Amen. Live in the moment. Don't live for tomorrow. Don't worry about the past. Live in the blessing of today that God has given us breath in our lungs, that we have family around us, that we're in the house of God, and enjoy all the blessings. Amen. Anybody with me? Three and a half people. Praise God. Philippians chapter 2. We're studying our way through the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul is under arrest. He's in chains. He's being led around by Romans, centurions. He's lost his liberty, yet he's writing an epistle uh, to the church here in Philippi, and it's the epistle of joy. Uh, What we want to learn from Paul is how we can have joy in life's toughest circumstances. God never promised us an easy life. Say amen. Oh, no, I thought once I became a Christian and came to the Lord and got saved, everything would be smooth and easy and perfect. The Word of God doesn't promise us that. He didn't promise us an easy life, but in the midst of all of life's trials and circumstances, He promised to be with us. I want to give you one side note. We can make our lives a lot more difficult than they need to be by not doing what God's asked us to do, but doing our own thing. Then, uh, then a not-so-easy life can become an incredibly complicated one. But even in our messes, God is with us. Come on, second service. Even in our messes, God is with us. <laughs> Chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul writing to a church that he planted, people that he gave the gospel to. He sees himself as a spiritual father to them. He says this in verses 12. Through 15. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Dramatic pause. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. There's so much in there that we're going to look at this morning, but remember, Paul has lost his liberty, but he has this amazing amount of joy. It's bubbling over. He wants it to touch the Philippian church as he pens this letter to them. The focus of verse 12, as we zero in, is all about obedience. Say obedience. Say it like you mean it. Obedience Obedience is something that all of us have to have in our life, but all of us struggle with. Amen? There are many times where we are asked to do something by those above us, by those on a job, by uh, those in our family, by the Lord himself, and we don't want to do it. And there's times where obedience is a struggle, and God expects obedience from us. It's It's the whole thrust of this verse here. He says, just as you've been obedient. So the Philippians had a track record of doing the right thing. 
You know, we can start off doing the right things. We can have a track record of doing right things. And then through some event or some decision or some crisis, we veer off and start doing things we should never do. How many understand it's hard to get back on track sometimes when you get off track? The best thing to always do is not get off track. If we're doing things in life that we know are not pleasing to God, realize every time we decide to do them, every day we walk in them, we're creating a rut for ourselves that will eventually become a ditch, that will eventually become a chasm that's really hard to get out of. So obedience is what God requires from us. And the Philippians had a track record of obedience, just as you have always obeyed. Now, he's reminding the Philippian church here and all of us today uh, something that we need to be reminded of from time to time, and that's this. Obedience is the only way to approach and please God. Did you get that? Obedience is the only way to approach and to please God. Well, I'm going to come to God just how I want to come, and I'm not going to come through Jesus, and I'm not going to come through Scripture, and I'm not going to come. I'm just going to come to God. Well, you know, that's not obedience. And sometimes people just give God this, you know, like it or lump it attitude. Well, this is me, God, and see what, you know, if you can do anything with me, I'm not changing, I'm not growing, I'm not stretching, and I'm not listening, but I believe in God. That describes so much of our world that's spinning around in circles, that's confused, that's in despair right now. Why? Because you can't approach God any old way. You've got to come to him in obedience, and obedience is what pleases him. That's our approach to God. Look, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Uh, You know, there are many people who in life Say, I, I don't listen to anybody. I just do whatever I want to do. Have you ever met people like that? Let's be honest. Have you ever been like that in seasons in, of your life? Well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And, you know, all of us have, you know, done that at times, especially before we've come to Christ. Hopefully after we come to Christ, we don't have a tangent like that. But, you know, people say things like, I I don't obey anybody but myself, or I I don't submit to anyone or anything, no government, no God, no religion. I'm free, and I do whatever I want. Now it's quiet. But the thing is, all of us have had attitudes like that in our heart. Why? Because they're the natural byproduct of the flesh. That's the way our flesh feels. Man, I just want to do my thing. I want to do what I want to do. I'm free. It's a free country. I'm free to do what I want yet. But there is a a penalty and a price tag to every act of disobedience. And at the end of our lives, we have to stand before God and give an account of what we've done. So... You know, these statements, I do whatever I want to do, I don't answer to anybody but myself, I don't submit to anyone, those are total fallacies on every level, and I'll show you why. They sound good, they sound bold, they sound liberating, but the truth is when it comes down to life, you have got to serve somebody or something. All of us serve somebody or something. You know, I think it was Bob Dylan that said you got to serve somebody. God bless that voice of his. Only a mother could love it, but <laughs> he was right on that account. You've got to serve somebody. 
and you're going to serve somebody, or you're going to serve something, and the person says, well, I don't serve any, I do my own thing, I, nobody's in charge of me, I don't submit to anyone. Listen, the person who refuses to submit to God in life is without realizing it, submitting to their own sinful nature, and is driven by the lust of the flesh like a bondage you've never known before. See, if I won't serve God, then I'll serve my fallen nature. And my fallen nature will drive me after the lust of the flesh, the pride of the eye, all of these things, sexual immorality. You know, you and I know it that when we were outside of Christ, we weren't free. We were in bondage. Come on, are there any Christians here this morning that can help me preach a little bit? We weren't free when we were outside of Jesus, when we weren't under his blood, when we weren't in a relationship. We were in bondage to so many things, drugs and alcohol and immorality and sexual exploration and all these things. Oh, I'm free. I'm progressive. I'm liberated. No, you're not. You're a slave in chains driven by the lust of your flesh. That's the reality. Freedom doesn't begin in a person's life until they bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior and are forgiven of their sins and are covered in the blood of the Lamb. That's when freedom begins, and that's when the joy starts. Are you fighting against the Lord? Are you refusing to submit to him? Are you knowingly doing things you shouldn't in the face of God and you wonder why there's no joy, there's no peace, there's something missing from everything you do in life? Stop. Submit. Obey. Find real freedom. Now, in verse 12 here, Paul makes two subtle points. And they have to do with obedience, and I want to point them out to you. Verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's some subtle points in there. The first one is this. The obedience Paul is requesting from the Philippians has nothing to do with listening to Paul. It has everything to do with obeying the gospel. Paul was not trying to get people to fall in line with his apostleship and listen to him and do exactly what he said. He wasn't trying to tell them, just listen to me, obey what I say, walk lockstep with me, do everything I say, and don't question me. No, Paul wasn't doing that. In fact, Paul said one time in Scripture, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, but he never said, you know, I want your obedience, And I want to point this out here. It's subtle, but our obedience is not to man. It's not to a pastor. It's not to a church or a denomination. Our obedience must be to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ himself, to the will of the Father. You know, be very careful of people who demand complete, unwavering, blind loyalty. People who demand such things are suspect. The person who says, do whatever I say and don't question me. The person who says, just, you know, I'll, I'll, you know I'll, I'll tell you what you think and I'll tell you what you do and you just, you know, you just give me blind loyalty. Don't question me. That's very suspect. Mindless obedience is the requirement of tyrants, madmen, and cult leaders. You should never give that to a person. Well, I just do whatever they tell me to do. No, we need to do what the Lord tells us to do. We need to do what the gospel tells us to do. Come on, we need to do what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. My job as pastor is not to control all of you and tell you exactly what to do. Man, there's not enough time in the day for that. I don't have the energy for that. You do what you know.
know you're supposed to do, and you follow the Holy Spirit. And, and if you need help, I'll come alongside of you and help you. But I'm not here to micromanage and control your life. That, that's up to the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. So our allegiance, our obedience, and the obedience Paul is requesting is not to himself. It's to the gospel. The second subtle point that's there. The obedience Paul wants is linked to personal integrity. Say integrity. He says, I want you to obey when? In my presence and in my absence. And this is important. If we behave only when we're being watched, we are not being obedient. Come on. Do you ever know people that, you know, you, 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 they'll listen, but you got to watch them. Come on, you can trust them, but you gotta, you got to keep an eye on them. You ever work with people like that? Anyone have small children? Come on, you can trust them, they, you know, but you got to keep an eye on them. If we only do the right things when someone's looking, then we're not really obedient at all. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, boss. And then they go away and it's, hey, you know, it's, it's party time. It's like, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to mess around. I'm going to do all the things I know I shouldn't do. That's not obedient. And that's a lack of personal integrity. You and I need to do the right things when no one's looking. So important. Uh, we all know people who act really spiritual or really together, uh, you know, when someone's watching or when they're in church, you know, they're all dressed up and they brush their teeth and they carry their Bible. They look spiritual and they, they say Christian things like, yes, brother, yes, sister. Oh, yes, my beloved. God's looking for real people. He's not looking for a performance. He's not looking for religiosity. Unfortunately, a lot of what passes for Christianity is just religiosity. When people do the right things outwardly, but, you know, they live like, you know, they live like they're the dearest of saints on Sunday, and on Monday they're a devil. I met people like that. I remember one time I was out uh, in the woods hunting, and some guy came through the woods, and he started yelling and cursing and telling me, you're, you're my spot and all this stuff. And I was a young guy. I was in Bible school. The next day I saw him in church. And he's walking past me, and I'm like, oh, hello, brother. I'm like, what is that? It's our performance on Sunday? Integrity is being the same person in front of the eyes of millions as you are when you're completely alone. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one's looking, and that's the subtle point of obedience here. Be obedient in my presence and in my absence. Those people who just, uh, you know, uh, do things right when everyone's looking, well, they're performers, they're man-pleasers, and their hearts are unconverted. Why? Because if we really wanted to please God, we would know even when people aren't looking at us, God's looking at us. God's looking at what we're doing. He's looking at our thoughts. He's looking at our actions, our behaviors, the things we put in our body, the things that come out of our mouth. So personal integrity is linked to obedience, and that's what Paul's looking for here. He's not looking for people to follow him. He wants them to follow the gospel. He wants them to be led by the Holy Spirit. These are the subtle points of verse 12. God is always looking. So you and I need to learn to do the right things when we think nobody's looking to please God. 
verse 12 continues. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, how many have read that verse and thought, man, that, that kind of sobers you up a little bit? Anybody? Anybody read the Bible? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, okay. So we read a verse like that, and it's like, wait a minute. I got the joy of the Lord, Lou. I'm saved. I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven of my sins now. I, I, I have to have fear and trembling? What's that all about? Well, it's not what a lot of people think. I think this verse is misunderstood, and I want to help us to understand it. But he's telling us that as we approach him with our salvation, that, you know, we have to do it in such a way that there's awe and that there's honor here. Why? Because we fear the Lord and we tremble in his presence. Now, I want you to understand something about this verse. You got to read it carefully. First of all, it's work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Let me say that again, because it's important that you get it. It's work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Paul's not saying work for your salvation because that that would conflict with the rest of Scripture. Salvation is a free gift of grace by God. He gives us the free. We don't earn our salvation. We don't work for our salvation. We don't. God doesn't say, okay, you're a a candidate now. We're going to sign you up. We're going to see if you can earn salvation. Oh, you blew it. You didn't make it. Well, I guess you don't get to go to heaven. No, salvation's a free gift. And you and I should be excited about that because if there's any way we could lose it, we would have lost it already. Amen? So it's not we're working for our salvation. Uh, God has given that us as a a gift of grace. But you got to understand the other part of that is that, you know, you and I are working out our salvation. What does that mean? That's where the fear and the trembling comes in. See, working out our salvation means when we get the gift, as we unwrap it, we implement it into our lives properly. You and I have been given a gift, and that gift is called salvation. Now, with that gift comes many small gifts. We have abilities, we have strengths, we have uh, abilities to do things and uh, spiritual uh, callings on our life. And anybody tracking me with this? So it's as if you're under the Christmas tree and Jesus says, you're forgiven. Here's all your gifts. Now we've got to unwrap each one of those gifts and implement them into our lives. The fear and the trembling comes in is that we would squander those gifts and not use them to accomplish the call of God in our lives. And at the end of our lives, we'd have to stand before God having said, well, you saved me, but I didn't do anything with the gifts that you've given me. You saved me, but I haven't done anything with the calling that you put on my life. That's where the fear and the trembling should come in. None of us want to stand before God having to account for have wasted our life wasted our days are we making our days count are we using the gifts that god has given us some of us have been given spiritual gifts and we use them in the world to make money we use them in the world to puff ourselves up we've been given gifts and and instead of using them to bring people to the lord we use them for our own selfish you know things Every one of these musicians up here, every one of us could go make money in the world playing music, but we choose to use our gift for the kingdom of God and not pervert it or pollute it in the things of the world. Well, that's a sacrifice at times. But you see what I'm saying? When you stand before God, what did you do with the gift? What did you do with the calling? 
That's where the fear and the trembling comes in. If we're wasting our time, wasting our days, squandering our gifts, the fear of God should come upon us and we should tremble because the time is coming where we'll have to stand before him and give an account. He won't say, well, you lost your salvation, but a lot of us are going to lose our rewards and not have anything to offer Jesus in the form of a crown at his feet. Don't just go through life, you know, doing everything that other people want you to do. Learn what the will of God is and do that. Amen. So there are a few subtle points in here, this fear and trembling thing. You know, many of us get caught up in the fact that, you know, we, we just do what we're told by other people. You know, some of us are more compliant than others. How many people would say, I'm a compliant person, I just do what I'm told? Wow, there's like five people. The rest of you are heathenous rebels? <laughs> how, many, how many of you say, like, I, no matter what you tell me, I just do what I want? Now you're scared to raise your hand. There's got to be somebody. There's only four people in the other group. Praise God. One guy raised his hand. God bless you. But, you know, the thing is... Some people just fall in line. They do what they're told, and that's good. But we can't go through life just doing what people expect us to do. Instead, we've got to do what God has called us to do. Someone say amen. We've got to do what God has called us to do. You know, and, and if we're going to do what just people tell us to do, we're going to be very disappointed at, at many times in life. How many have learned in life that it is impossible to please people? Come on, if you're not raising your hand well, you've got some lessons ahead of you. Because I'm telling you, no matter how hard you try, even if you do everything they say, it is impossible to please people. Some days they're like, oh, you're great. The next day they are not happy with you. And I learned this lesson late in life, but I learned it at the dentist's office. And I had a dentist, and I was getting older, and you know, he gives me the speech about you got to take care of your teeth, you got to take care of your gums, and you got to get regular cleanings. And he's telling me all this stuff. And I actually am sitting in the chair, and I decided I'm going to listen. Maybe for the first time in my life, I decided I'm going to do what this guy tells me to do. So I go home, and I start this new regiment that I do, brushing and using the toothbrush ride and flossing three times a day and all, and all of these things I'm doing. And a year later, it's time to go back to the dentist, and for the first time, I'm excited to go because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be one of those good checkups. You ever go to the dentist, and you haven't been in years, and you're like, this is going to be like medieval torture. Here we go. No, now I'm happy. My teeth, are, they ain't have to do nothing. My teeth are shining. I'm like those gum commercials. You open your mouth, it's like, ding, you know. I go in there, and he's like, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing good. You know what? I listened to what you told me, and I've been brushing, and I've been using my toothbrush right, and the thing you showed me, and I'm flossing three times a day. And he goes, you're flossing three times a day? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, what do you have, OCD? I'm like, you got to be kidding me. The, the one guy who should have gave me an attaboy about doing what I was supposed to do with my oral hygiene just accused me of having some sort of mental problem. <laughs> and right there in the chair, I quit. I quit. I'm not doing anything with this guy. I'm not, listen, I'm, not, I'm not trying to please people anymore because, you know, even when you do exactly what they tell you to do, they're not happy. Be obedient to God. Do what he tells you to do. Use the gifts that he's given you. Make God happy. If you're going to please anyone, please God. He's going to reward you for your obedience. 
He's going to reward you. Your life is going to have peace. You're going to have joy. Paul's locked up. He's in chains. He's got joy. Why? Because he's in the perfect will of God, doing what God said. He's not doing what this guy said or this apostle said. He's doing what Jesus called him to do. And he's got joy, and we can have joy too. You can't please people, so don't even try. Verse 13 shows us that God is at work in all of us. And this is an important text. Each one of these verses is so powerful. I think I could spend a week on each one of them. But it says here in 13, for it is God who is at work in you. Who's at work in you? It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do do work for his good pleasure. So God is working in all of us. And I want to remind you of this today to encourage you. God is doing a deep work in all of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God is working in you. Pastor, it feels like nothing's going on. It feels like I'm treading water. It feels like, you know, uh, n- you know, I'm not growing at all. Well, check. Are you being obedient? Are you doing what you're supposed to do? Or have you given yourself license to sin? If none of that's true, then God is doing a deep work in you. He's fixing broken things in your heart. He's fixing broken things in your mind. He's fixing your spiritual condition. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is going to work in all of us until he takes us home to be with him forever. He's working in us. You know, sometimes being worked on is not pretty. Well, I look like a mess. Have you ever seen a construction site? Have you ever seen a building under construction? You, you drive through Poughkeepsie and you see one of those old buildings from back in World War II. They're, they're getting stripped apart and redone. I mean, it looks like, it looks like it, it's been shelled. It got hit by something, you know. They, they're ripping all the thing apart. There's mud on the front lawn. The steps are gone. There's scaffolding everywhere. Sometimes construction's not pretty. But the finished result is going to be so much better than it was before, Amen. Look, God is working on all of us. The Holy Spirit is working on all of us like a master builder. Sometimes we don't notice our own growth. We see it in everyone else, but we don't see it in ourselves. But be assured, God is doing a good, deep work in you if you're following after Jesus. Now, I want you to understand about this work. This work is uh, the result of the Holy Spirit working from the inside out on us. It's not the process of outside in. Let me explain to you what I mean about that. Religious people or spiritual people or people who just like to look good in the eyes of others will change exterior things about themselves so people think they've got it all together. They'll cut their hair. They'll change the way they dress. They'll lose some weight. They'll present themselves in a certain way. We've all seen people like this. Maybe we've even done it ourselves. You know, in the business world, you, you got to dress for success, they say, right? You don't show up to an interview with ripped jeans and a, a white T-shirt with a mustard stain on it. Hello? You know, you do? You show up like that? Did you get the job? I don't think so. So, you know, we understand this exterior. If we look good, if we look like we got it together, you know, if we, we have some form of, you know, uh, you know, people look at us and go, oh, this guy's, you know, normal. We figure, you know, we can fake it till we make it. But the truth is, God doesn't work on us that way. He doesn't just change the exterior. You know, it's not like, well, cut your hair really short, Rick, and put some clothes on that match and carry a big Bible. Look really spiritual. 
and then think, well, I've, I've got spiritual growth. It's an inside-out process that God does. The Holy Spirit works on the deep things inside us, the broken things, the bad attitudes, the, the hurts from growing up, the dysfunction from our families, all of these things, the broken stuff in us, the places where we just quit on ourselves, where we quit on God, where we decided, I'm going to give myself license to do all kinds of things that are going to destroy me. And the Holy Spirit is working from the inside out, from the inside out. And you know what? When God changes the inside, he changes the heart, and he changes the mind, and he heals the spirit, then the exterior begins to look different. Then people can see that something's changed, and it's real. When Moses went up the mountain to get the law, he went up there and he was in the presence of God. And when he came down, the scripture uh, chronicles that he had the, the Shekinah glory of God on him, that he was literally glowing when he came off the mountain. And the people saw him and they were like, ah! They were scared of him. Well, what was that? Well, did God go, you know, up there, uh, Moses, I'm going to sprinkle a little Holy Ghost dust on you, and it's like, you know, it's better than any makeup that Maybelline makes, and you're going to look good, and you're going to glow. No, God changed them internally. Being in the presence of God changed Moses' heart, changed his mind, and because of that internal change, his exterior was changed to the point where he reflected the glory of God got to get this today. It's not an external facade. It's not a religious performance. It's not us uh, pretending to be Christians. It's not us using Christian words. It's us being in the presence of God on our knees before Jesus till he changes us from the inside so that people can see Christ in us on the outside so that we'll become spiritually attractive to others. You know, is the church spiritually attractive to those on the outside? What, is the, what does the world think about the church? You know, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental. You hear it all the time, what they call us. Well, I'm not coming to church. It's just full of hypocrites. Well, we got room for one more. Why don't you come in, and maybe Jesus will save you. And then, you know, a lot of it's excuses. But the thing is, God wants to work on the inside, and he is working on the inside. Verse 14 kind of shifts gears a little bit here, and it says the verse that I kind of stopped for a dramatic pause as we looked at it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. So here's uh, Paul just giving a blanket statement to the Philippians. Do all things without grumbling. Do all things without complaining. Uh, and, and many times we could just read a text like that and read over it quick, but it's a tall order for us to get that completely out of our lives. Some people think complaining is their spiritual gift. Well, since I can do everything better than everybody else, every time I see something that's not done the way I would have do it, I'm going to complain. And that's my gift to the body of Christ. Please go to church somewhere else. But <laughs> grumbling and complaining is not a gift. It's not a spiritual gift at all. It's not spiritual at all. And the truth is God's people have always struggled with complaining and arguing and grumbling just look at the children of Israel when they got led out of Egypt. What's almost the first thing they do? As soon as they were freed from slavery, they started complaining. Moses, nuts. They drove God nuts. They made God angry. We, we got manna. All we got is manna. Every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, manna, manna, manna. We want some meat. Oh, you want some meat? Here's quail. Quail, quail, quail. All we got is quail. You know, uh, we're thirsty. We're hungry. Our sandals are worn out. Complain. 
They drove Moses nuts. He couldn't deal with them all. He had to sit down all day long to judge their issues and to solve their issues. And, and, and you know, Jethro came and said, you can't do that. God got aggravated with them. He sent them quail. He, he was like, you know, just dealing with the complaint. And the truth is God's people have always had an issue with complaining. You know, and honestly, I think, you know, you could say, well, you know, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't do that now. Uh, we've gotten worse now. The technology has made us worse. Why? Because now we can complain on the Internet in the ears of millions of people. Now we can complain on social media. And you know what? If people complain on social media. I think we've taken complaining and grumbling and being vitriolic and judgmental to a whole nother level. Our culture has. You, get a, you say anything on the Internet. You, you say Jesus loves you. You're going to have 10 people laugh at you and say things, call you out. There is no God. You believe in a fake this and that. Some people will just give you a little laugh emoji. You ever, ever see that? They laugh. Ha, 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 ha. What, what's ha, 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 That God loves you. You know what the problem is? We've taken it to another level of complaining because of the anonymity. It's anonymous now. The, you know, you can say something to someone and you don't have to answer to them. Back when I grew up, you said something about somebody, and all of a sudden, you open the door. Hey, you said something about me? Come out, come outside. No, I don't want your kids to see. Come behind the bush here. No, we don't do that anymore. Could you imagine some of these people who that you're misogynistic, narrow-minded, religious, you know, and all of a sudden you're you know, all of a sudden you're up at their door, knock, knock, knock. Hey, it's me. Misogynistic, narrow-minded, legalistic. Come out here. Any other Italians out there? <laughs> now people just say what they want from the comfort of their mother's basement, eating a hot pocket in their underwear. Right? And we complain and say things about people. I'm telling you, when I grew up in school, you said stuff, you talked smack about people. There was times there was somebody in your driveway standing there waiting for you to come out and fight. I remember it. I don't want to get too much in the flesh. What I'm trying to make the point here is that, you know, we, we complain like, and we've taken it to another level because there's no accountability and people just say stuff. God's spirit is trying to work in us to root that grumbling and that complaining and that, 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 that disputing nature out of us. You know, you say, well, come on, Pastor Rick, those guys in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they complain so much. No way that we complain as much as them. You know, you might think that, but I want you to realize something. They complained in the hardship of the desert, and we're complaining in the lap of luxury. I'll say it again. They complained in the hardship of the desert. They were out in the desert. There's no air condition. They didn't have any cars. They had to walk everywhere they go. Their sandals were wearing out. They had sand in places that I can't talk about on Sunday. They were just having a rough time out there. If you think it's easy, man, I like to bring you out to the desert, you know, with this much water. You got to walk 50 miles, and then maybe, maybe they'll be, you know, we complain, and we got everything at our hands reach in the lap of luxury, in our comfortable homes, driving our cars with two and three houses on vacations and all this stuff, and we complain and complain and grumble and fight with one another. 
And God says, it's not, it's not for my children. That's the way the world behaves. My children have to be different. We have to get that grumbling and that complaining out. We've got to be thankful for what we have. We've got to be thankful for all the conveniences and the gifts and the food and the heat and the roof over our heads and the Christmas presents under the tree and the nice cars that we drive and the jobs that we have. And I can go on and on and on and on. I've been to third world countries. We've been there together, Lou. We've walked into houses that had nothing, a a dirt floor with a pot in the middle and a machete and a calendar. That was it. And these people were so happy, it blew my mind. And here's the Americans. I need food. I'm hungry. Where's my sunscreen? And I lost my slippers and my sandals are gone. God help us. So... Grumbling and disputing, it's got to go. The absence of complaining and arguing in a believer's life is proof that they've learned some things. Here, it says, prove yourselves. Did you hear that? Maybe it's a weird concept to us that God would ask us to prove ourselves. Well, you dress nice, you carry a Bible, you show up for church, you say you're a Christian, prove it. What happens when the world says, prove it? What happens when heaven says, prove it? Prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach. What does that mean? That we live at such a level of integrity that if someone put the magnifying glass to our lives, they could look at us and go, I can't find any fault with this guy. I can't find any issues with them. Now think about that magnifying, magnifying glass being over me and you. How are we doing? God help us. But... We've got to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, not to earn our salvation, no, but to work out our salvation, to use the gifts that we have to become what God has intended us to be, to prove ourselves. Now, verse, the next verses here as we continue through, 15 is saying to prove ourselves, blameless, innocent children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked, say crooked, and perverse, say perverse, a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So we got to get the complaining out. We got to get the disputing out. We got to do the right things when no one's looking, have integrity. We got to be obedient to God and use the gifts he's given us, not to earn our salvation, but to prove that we're children of God, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we're going to answer to him someday. This continues here, and the apostle actually acknowledges what? That exercising spiritual restraint in a world that casts off all restraint is difficult. Look, if you and I just hang around ungodly, unsaved, secular people who don't go to church and don't serve Jesus and aren't born again, and we see all the things that they do, we're going to do what they do if that's all we're around. Eventually, it's going to wear us down. So pay attention to your circle of friends. Pay attention to who you spend your time with because you'll never rise above that group. And here God is telling us, you know, this world, it it casts off all restraint. And the word of God's telling us that, you know, we're not to be like the world, but we are to be under control to restrain ourselves in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He calls the generation that the Philippians live in crooked and perverse. What do you think Paul would say about our generation? I I mean, is crookeder a word? Perversiver? I mean, have we knocked it up a few degrees? 
people who say they're Christians and do all kinds of ungodly things and still say, hey, I'm a Christian, but, you know, the crookedness and the perverseness of the world is something that we adopt and we model, and, and it shouldn't be in the church. The fact is that the world system has always been crooked and perverse, and the key for us as Christians and the church and the body of Christ is to keep the worldly perversities out of the church. We've got to keep it out of the church. We've got to keep it out of our doctrine. We've got to keep it out of our theology. And look, you don't have to be a, 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 some sort of doctor in theology to realize that the things of the world have crept into the church and have polluted the, the theology of the church, that we do things in the church and we say things are okay now that the Bible says are sin. I'm not talking about full gospel center. We're, you know, we have a conviction about that, but there are churches that are doing things that are blatantly unscriptural and saying, well, it's a different time. It's a new, it's grace. God is love. Yeah, and on the other side of God's love, God is just and God is righteous. And, and it's, love doesn't just cover, you know, well, you can do whatever you want. You can, you know, you can sin and sexual immorality and you can live together and all this stuff. No, sin is still sin. And, and we can't bring sin into the church and pollute the church. Why? Because then the world, the crookedness and the perversity of the church, of the world becomes something that's in the church and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, the world's crooked, we, we get it. The world is sinful, we get it because they don't know Jesus yet. But you and I can't allow ourselves to become the same way. We've got to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Listen to me, everybody out there. Young people, young men, be men of God. In a world of people who just follow blindly, people who have no authority, be leaders in the midst of your generation. Be men of God. Young ladies, in a world of perversity and sexual immorality where women are told to be sexually aggressive, be women of God. Be restrained. Be, keep yourself for the husband that God has got for you. Amen? Young people, the world is lying to you. Oh, do this, drink that, smoke that, it's legal now. Just put whatever garbage you want into your temple of the Holy Spirit and say, oh, well, I'm still a Christian. Now I'll clap for myself. <laughs> Crooked and perverse, that shouldn't be in the church. And I know there's a lot of pressure out there, and I know it seems normal out there, but that's the world. Now, we're supposed to be different here, and we are different, and uh, Jesus makes us different. It's not that we're better than anybody else. It's not that we're so disciplined. I don't know about you, but you know what? If, if there was no forgiveness, if there was no cross, if there was no blood, if there was no salvation, I'd be out there sinning with the best of them. If you know me, I don't do anything halfway in my life. Everything I do, I do 110%. That's why I'm annoying. Ask my wife. If I hunt, I, 110%. Martial arts, 110%. Whatever I do, I give myself completely to it. Look, look if, if, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Jesus, 110%. But if there was none of that, I'd be 110% a sinner. I want to get a black belt in sin. But there is a God, and there is salvation, and there is an empty tomb, and there is a cross to look at. 
and there is heaven to gain and a hell to shun. <laughs> and I want to please the one, I want to please the one who laid his life down for me. So here the scripture says to prove ourselves blameless and innocent, to be children of God. Young people, be men and women of God in a perverse and crooked generation. Why? Be above reproach in the midst of them. So what? So you will shine like lights in the world. Look what it says here. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. So very simply, you and I are not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to be a light that pierces the darkness of the world. What good is it if the world is dark and the church is dim? We don't need dim churches. We don't need churches that are just a little, a little flicker. You know, we need bright beacons, bright lights shining in the darkness. A bright light pierces the darkness. You ever walk outside some nights and the, the sky is clear and you look up and you see the stars? When anybody ever go outside? Put your phone down. Go outside. Look up. Stop looking down here. Look up and look in the sky. And you're going to see stars that are so bright. They're millions and billions of miles away, and yet they will pierce the night sky, and they are almost so bright that you can't look directly at them. That's what God's saying you and I should be in this dark world. That word lights means luminaries. It means stars. God is saying that you and I are his stars in the sky, in that dark sky, to light up the sky and to give people hope that there's a better way than just living in darkness. Stars do some certain things, and when they're in the sky shining, the stars point to the vastness and the majesty of God. If you look at all of those planets, all of those solar systems, all, all the, the Big Dipper and the North Star and all of these things. I mean, if you ever just take a minute to appreciate the vastness and the majesty of what God has done just in the heavenly bodies, it's an amazing thing. If you, I mean, if you got any spiritual, you know, aliveness at all, when you look up there, you're like, wow, that's awesome. And then you think, what, what's going on in all those places and, you know, and, they got Walmart on that one. It's vast. It's big. It's beautiful. It's majestic. That's what stars do in the sky. They point to the majesty of God. And you know what? You and I should do that as well. Our lives should point to the majesty of God. Stars provide light in the darkness, and that's what we should do. There's people stuck in the darkness all around us, on our street, our neighbors, our coworkers, you know, within our families. They are lost in the dark, and we're supposed to be the light. Listen, a light in the dark will give people hope that they can move towards the light and come out of the dark. We should do that. Stars provide direction uh, to navigate a true course. The, the, the people who navigated ships on the ocean, and they still train them to do this without instruments today, but to look at stars and, and, and get them as bearings and beacons so they can chart a course just by the stars. Why can you do that? Because a star is something that you can depend on. It, it will show true north. It's something that you can navigate by, and that should be our lives. That people look at you and I as Christians and say, you know what, yeah, you're not perfect, but you got joy and you, you, you're blessed. And like, how did, you get, how did you get that? We can help them to navigate towards Jesus. You and I are God's stars in the darkness of this world. Yeah, the world's crooked and perverse, but Jesus has the remedy for that. We were all crooked and perverse at one time, 
But Jesus is the remedy for that. So many times as Christians, we feel insignificant. We feel small and unimpressive. We feel like we don't have much worth or much impact in this world. But our Heavenly Father knows what he's put in us. And he knows what he's called us to do. And he knows that there's a light in us that can pierce the darkness. So during this Christmas season, let your light shine. Be obedient to God. Show integrity. Do the right things when no one's looking. Make some changes in your life. Change your circle of friends. Move towards God and allow him to explode in your heart with joy as he conforms you into the image of Jesus Christ and brings purpose to everything you do. Let your light shine in Jesus' name. Amen.